Hello and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. My name's Peggy Hughes. With just over a week to go until this year's festival begins, have you checked out the programme on the website wigtownbookfestival.com? It's jam-packed full of Wigtown flavoured treats that will be slamming straight into your living room slash kitchen slash spare bedroom, maybe garden if the weather holds, in very short order and there is very much there to enjoy and we hope that you will join us. In the meanwhile, though, this week's episode of the podcast features Dean Atta and Sam Baker, two authors who have recently moved to Scotland and whose very different books are nevertheless united in looking at the potentially liberating possibilities of change in our lives. Dean Atta was named as one of the most influential LGBT people in the UK by The Independent on Sunday, and his debut novel, The Black Flamingo, was awarded the 2020 Stonewall Book Award. Told through verse, it is a bold, coming-of-age story which follows a mixed-race gay teen as he begins to accept his identity, and at university becomes a drag artist under the name The Black Flamingo. I just want to get right into it with this really beautiful, award-winning, striking book of yours, The Black Flamingo. And just f- for you maybe to start by just telling us what was the... I heard, I heard someone recently talk about each book is like a door opens, you know, that's the start of it for them or a starting gun or the, the first seed, if you will. What was that for you with this book? Um, it's a poem that sits somewhere in the middle of the book. Um, the Black Flamingo is a novel in verse, so it's a series of poems that tell a story. And the story is about a boy called Michael um, he's mixed race, um, Greek Cypriot and Jamaican, growing up in London and going to university in Brighton. He, he visits his family in Cyprus and there's a sighting of a black flamingo. For those that kind of can't picture it, a flamingo is usually pink, but this flamingo, its feathers are full of melanin, which means they're entirely black. So the pigment has changed by some sort of genetic reason. And um, when he sees that, he's just like, wow. And for me, the kind of door was that I went to Cyprus to visit my family. So Michael shares a lot of kind of similar traits to me being I'm also mixed race. Yeah, also grew up in London. And I've got family in Cyprus. So when I went to Cyprus and saw the Black Flamingo, I just was like, wow. And it felt like a metaphor for, you know, being black and gay, for standing out from the crowd, for being different but fabulous and then the story presented itself to me of like a boy wanting to be a drag queen because the flamingos and the feathers it made me think of a feather boa and you know it just kind of fell into my head almost but it was definitely the moment a real life moment of seeing um, this black flamingo when I was in Cyprus and being like this is something special and yeah it's like the metaphor I'd been waiting for my whole career because <laughs> it really was a fruitful one and once you start you know there's so much you can do with it like and I've tried to do all those things in the book there's some things I tried to do maybe that didn't work for the book but like just examining a flamingo in itself all the metaphors you can pull out of it and one of the ones I use early in the book is that you know flamingos in captivity what the keepers will do is take the eggs from them and incubate them and give fake eggs to the flamingos in the in the zoo and so they're nesting with a with a pretend egg but then the zookeepers watch the parents um, and to see who's giving their egg the best attention and those parents get a real egg when it's almost about to hatch like that kind of state control it made me think a lot about our current situation as well just the fact that we kind of deem who's worthy who's fit and who's able to do certain things in society I don't call it state control in the book but like I use metaphors to think about 
all the kind of things that I want to explore. But when you're doing it for younger readers and also doing it in poetry, you don't want to be super preachy or even say exactly that. I kind of try and, and present a metaphor that could mean many things. That's the great thing about poetry for me is that I can use it when I'm using in the book several times. I use the idea of fight or flight. Um, and, you know, that's a human instinct and reaction. But, you know, many animals have it also and the idea for Michael is you know there's situations in the book he faces where he can either stand up or he can run away and sometimes you want to stand up for yourself and sometimes it's safer to run away and so I don't say all of that I just say fight or flight as a question and then he makes his decision that again is imbued with like lots of our understanding of human psychology and animals as well but you don't need to say it all. You can be really economical in poetry. You can just say fight or flight and people know what you mean. Apparently, the collective noun for flamingos is a flamboyance. Exactly. Seems, um... And also, there's it's a flamboyance or a stand because they stand on one leg. I think in the book, you know, Michael is very flamboyant, especially towards the end when he becomes a drag performer. And at several points in the book, he also takes a stand. He stands up for himself um, in particular and stands up for the LGBT community and stands up against bullies. I definitely had that in mind. I did my flamingo research and that's why Michael is the black flamingo. I don't always directly link him to the traits of a flamingo, but I think his actions are informed by me always having a flamingo in my mind when I'm writing him. And there's so many bits and pieces that kind of are in there and I hope people notice, but then if they don't, it's fine because it's just part of the texture, the fabric of the book. Yeah, I don't necessarily want someone to take a pink highlighter and find all the flamingo facts, but if you do, let me know and send me pictures. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed someone will do. That'd I hope so. Cool. <laughs> Um, tell us then a little bit more about Michael, this just flamboyant, wonderful character. I mean, and for you growing up, were there many Michaels in books that you were reading? No, no. And I've, I've thought about this and who was my closest boy character in a book that I really felt an affinity to. And um, it was actually um, Charlie from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, because as a boy, you know, I grew up without very much money. And I hoped one day I'd be endowed with something. So whether it was like a gift or a win, or a kind of work hard and do well, but I always thought Charlie was super lucky. But it's an interesting story, because it's also about you've got to be virtuous to be rewarded in life. And that's not really how life always works when we look at our society. But yeah, yeah, I think for me, that was it, aspiration and wanting to do well, to be able to like maybe support my family. Those are the kind of characters. So fairy tales as well. But I often, being gay, maybe I often kind of felt more an affinity to the princesses. And I was waiting for my prince <laughs> until I realized that I'm the prince. Um, so that's why at the beginning of The Black Flamingo, I'm like, this book is a fairy tale in which I'm the prince and the princess. I'm my own wicked witch and fairy godmother because you know fairy tales I think really spoke to me when I was younger but I, I think I always saw myself as the one that needed saving by someone else I realized you know you've got to save yourself so that's what childhood books often present and I'm glad now I think there's a much more wide range of children's books and offering and actually the original fairy tales were really dark and they didn't have happy endings so I think now there's there's much more on offer in children's stories and children's literature so I'm, I'm glad you know, I'm writing at a time when a book like mine is welcomed and isn't seen as too risque. It's actually seen as like a really beautiful addition to the wide offering that's out there for kids. 
Mm, definitely. I mean, a really empowering book for, for teenagers to read. What what were the consider, other considerations for you then, Dean, in, in writing for that age group? I think it's the first time you've written for, for the young adults or yeah, reader. Yeah, it was. Yeah. But, um, I do a lot of workshops in school. So I go into secondary schools and primary schools and do poetry workshops. So I kind of have um, an idea of what young people respond well to because I have to pick poems to show them if I don't have any of my own that feel suitable for the topic or for the age group and so I kind of gauge the tone of voice and the vocabulary as well on that and so as Michael grows up in the book because you meet him at six years old and by the end of the book he's 19 years old so I really got to play with the repertoire of what I can do as a, as a writer because I was writing as a six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight, nine, ten, all the way up to 19. And I kind of had in mind, okay, if I was going to present something to a class of young people of this age, what would be the right tone of voice to take and how do they talk? I also did a lot of I guess, research by taking bits of my work in progress to the school groups I was working with. I thought, is that um, cheeky? Like, because I, I was, you know, I get regularly contacted to do school workshops. And I and at the time of writing the book, I was going to decline because I thought I need to focus on my writing. But actually, I responded to the teachers and said, well, I'm writing a book at the moment. And so what would work for me would be to come in and share some of the book and talk to the young people about my process and get their feedback. Is that okay? And they were like, yeah, they would Amazing. love that. Um, <laughs> and I didn't know that young people would love to be that involved in, in, in the author's process. I've been used to only facilitating them to write. And I didn't know that they'd be interested in, you know, helping me with my writing. Um, <laughs> and they did. They loved it. And so I did that with, the, with school groups. And I also did it with um, some university students as well, because I went back to my old university and stayed on campus for a week and did some some workshops and readings and and chats with um, students and that was really fun because I'm 35 and so it's a while since I was at uni doing my undergrad and so it things have changed um, and things have changed in schools a great deal as well that was the biggest thing that I noticed and that's why I wrote Black Flamingo in the present day and as fiction rather than use my own childhood because it's so different for young people today. There's a lot more awareness of LGBT people and, um, you know, there's a lot more support in schools. Like a lot of schools have LGBT like clubs that meet at lunchtime or book groups um, that meet in the library or after school clubs or, you know, like gay straight alliance type things that go on but they call it like rainbow club and and it's just so nice and to see PE teachers wearing rainbow laces and other teachers wearing rainbow lanyards with their ID and their keys on it's just lovely and if that was there when I was in school I would have felt so supported so empowered and so just like everyone else and you know not feel like the odd one out yeah I was really wanting to reflect that because you know when I was at school we had section 28 and you know teachers couldn't talk about people being gay and there weren't books like mine in the school library so I lost out but it's great that I can now contribute something to to this generation of kids. This is a, a represented departure in several ways I would say from what's come before but what were the challenges for you or not challenges the opportunities good things you know just about writing a verse novel? Um, just a longer form I usually write a poem and it's done you know and it's a page or at most three pages long but this is like you know a really long poem <laughs> but you know and it's quite hard to edit as well because you know you might edit a line or a, an image and then realize okay you've used that image or that phrase 
elsewhere. So you need to change it in several places in the book or you add something and then you're thinking, well, actually, does that contradict something earlier on? So you have to keep rereading the whole thing to see that you've made sense. And it's actually quite excruciating to read yourself that often. Um, Whereas when it's a one page poem, I think it's easy to shift and edit and change things and spot the difference. But it's worth the hard work, especially when, you know, people tell you it was a page turner and it then and they didn't want to stop reading it and then and, you know so that's the reward tell, tell us if you would about your own relationship to drag yeah so I did drag as a hobby because poetry was like my my main passion and I turned that into a career and a job and then I was like what's my passion otherwise and I thought drag would be fun let me let me give that a go and then I turned it into a job <laughs> like, because I'd, I'd done a few drag gigs and then I was getting paid drag gigs because unfortunately there aren't many, I think a lot of drag nights, like a lot of publishers, for example, like they'll have one black drag performer, like, um, and one publisher might have, you know, one black writer that they're championing um it's getting better but like i think sometimes it was like that you know you come onto the scene and then like you're instantly compared to the the few others that are there and that's really a shame and so i I noticed that and and i kind of found that i loved doing drag um i loved being on stage but there are a lot of challenges so yeah i think the not the racism in the drag scene, but the kind of lack of diversity in the drag scene bothered me a bit. And also the lack of diversity sometimes in the audience as well. Like, but there's some amazing nights, um, like the Cocoa Butter Club in London, for example, that really champions performers of colour. And so, but those kind of spaces were quite rare to find. Yeah, I found, you know, if you weren't responding or creating work that was about race, it was kind of a challenge to you know, you you either got to be fun or you're political. And sometimes you can be both. But you kind of felt like as a black performer, you're kind of second guessing what you should do and how you should do it. And I think that's reflected in the book as well. Michael says some things about that when he's preparing his Black Flamingo act. Yeah, so if you if you are interested, I think I explain it better in the book as Michael than Dean can explain it to you right now. But I basically found it was a real drain on my thoughts about, you know, how to present and what to say on stage. You know, I created this one initial performance. And I think actually that one initial performance was the performance. And everything I've tried to do since I felt like, no, I've done it. Like I've said it, I've been it, I've done it. What it's kind of come down to is that I've realized I needed to do that performance to be able to write about it for Michael in the book. And I think that was me not done with drag, but for now, that was the reason I was doing drag. And I didn't know it at the time. I was kind of drawn to drag because then this story, this this kind of flamingo image was going to come to me and then it was going to all come together. And I don't know if I believe in fate or destiny, but like I definitely believe that something magical happened when I saw the flamingo and I did drag and I thought of Michael's story and I was able to write it with a great deal of authenticity, having tried drag out myself. But like, this is me in my, you know, 30s doing drag, like Michael does drag in his teens. And I think doing it so young is super empowering because I think from then on, I would hope Michael or any teenager that does drag would know that it's all a performance. Life, what you get dressed and wear in the morning if you decide to wear makeup or nail varnish or any of these things wearing heels or not 
it's all a performance, like wearing a, a standard business suit or a school uniform, or it's all costume and it's all performance. It's all about whether or not you fit in in society or want to stand out. I think that's what drag shows me. And I think people get that when they watch, you know, things like RuPaul's Drag Race as well. It's interesting because some of the acts on Drag Race will talk as their drag name the whole time. And sometimes they bring in their boy name. And that's really interesting because they go between the two and there's a fluidity there. And I sometimes feel like when I was the Black Flamingo myself doing that act in Drag Nights in London, I found it yeah, really empowering. But I was kind of, I always knew I was Dean Atta as the Black Flamingo. I didn't necessarily feel like I fully became the Black Flamingo because I think the Black Flamingo was a, a kind of a character that I was acting. And I think for some people, though, when they do their drag, it's a, it's a part of them that was always there. And it's kind of an extension of themselves. For me, I kind of think it was to write the book that I needed to do the drag, feel like what it's like to be on stage in drag and to be able to write it well. I don't know how I would have written it if I hadn't done drag myself. Um, so I don't know how people write authentic like fantasy. Like, well, I don't know if you can write authentic <laughs> fantasy, but like write about going into space when they haven't been into space or, yeah. you know. Like method acting. Yeah, like being, method a, writing, being a mermaid yeah. if they haven't been a mermaid. I'd be like, if I was going to write about a mermaid, I'd want to strap on a tail and get down there. Like, <laughs> I don't think I could <laughs> do it otherwise. <laughs> I'm just Amazing. a method writer, basically. There's method acting. And there's method writing. And I think I'm a method writer. I want to try it out for myself to be able to write it. I mean, that leads me to ask you, what what are you working on? Now, this, now the mind boggles. I'm thinking, oh, is Dean going to try and get to space or be a mermaid? But what what's next? Yeah, what's I'm trying to next? become pals of Elon Musk and go to space. Um, no, I'm, I'm writing a book set in Glasgow because I live here now. I've been very welcomed into the literary community here, into the queer community here. I'm going to try and channel some of what I've experienced here in Glasgow into some really cool characters. But I'm writing a book called Only on the Weekends, and it's about a boy called Mac. He moves from London to Glasgow, meets a, a boy called Finn, but he also leaves behind his boyfriend Karim in London. And so it's about... It's a bit of a love triangle. Um, So, yeah, maybe I've done some method (laughs) 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 to write that. Um, Yeah, it's it's. I've I've written the first draft, and I'm really pleased because I've written from three perspectives, which is very different. In the Black Flamingo, I wrote just the one perspective of Michael, but in only on the weekends, I've written Mac, Finn, and Karim's perspectives, and it's really great to see how three people can see the same situation so differently, and that's been really fun for me and yeah it's going to come out in August 2021. Very exciting and just finally Dean you you, you mentioned um, your move to Glasgow and you've got a new role as co-director of the Scottish BAME Network uh, Writers Network. What's that like? What what work are you planning with um, that network? We at the Scottish BAME Writers Network we do lots of advocacy for BAME writers. We provide opportunities, paid opportunities to lead workshops and write blogs on topics of Um, the writers choosing and also we do partnerships so we've got a new partnership that I've um, established with Scottish Pen partnerships with several publishers and magazines and organizations here in Scotland we feed into lots of conversations and consultations um, around the literary sector in Scotland and the UK and um, we provide you know spaces for writers to come together on a regular basis and write together and talk to each other and support each other we got facebook twitter and a newsletter 
and um, and our own website to kind of provide information and call outs for submissions and and all the opportunities from from us and all our kind of organizations that we work with so yeah it's been great to be involved like I'd been really heavily involved in a, a writers group that they had running throughout all of the lockdown and that was on a weekly basis every Friday and that that was such a oh, it was like a, a safe haven uh, kind of uh, an oasis in all of this um, you know to come together with other writers of color and and write together and talk about how we were feeling, how we were doing. And then they were advertising for a co-director and I'd been here a year and I thought that's probably long enough to kind of have a handle on things and be able to confidently step into a role like this. I think if it had been any earlier, I'd have been like, I'm too new, I can't, I can't possibly. Um, but it's a really kind of democratic kind of committee situation. So we all work together um, to kind of make decisions, you know, program things. So it's been great. Thank you so much to Dean. Dean will be joining us online at the Wigtown Book Festival on Monday, the 28th September at 9pm. So be sure not to miss that. Sam Baker is a journalist, broadcaster and author, as well as the former editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan and Red. She co-founded The Pool and has been a judge for the Women's Prize for Fiction, the Costa Novel Award and the Nibbies. Sam shares her experiences of life post-40 in her new book, The Shift, showing how women are creating their own story, taking a leaf out of the millennial handbook and reinventing things their way. Sam Baker, real pleasure to get to chat to you today about your brilliant book, The Shift. Could you just begin by telling us what made you want to write this book? I started to experience perimenopausal symptoms, which I didn't realise were perimenopausal symptoms, in my mid-40s, which is, you know, it's not obscenely young, but it's quite young. And I had no idea what was happening to me. I had no where to turn. You know, none of my friends were talking about it. And in fact, a couple of them kind of approached me with the sign of the cross when I asked them about it as if it was catching. But also, there were just no, not fair to say there were no books, but there just weren't books for me, you know, there were health books and medical books, but I'm just not that person. And the combination of that and the fact that I was just struck by how little I knew. I mean, I knew all about night sweats and hot flushes because that's what you do know, isn't it, about menopause. But so many other symptoms and particularly mental health symptoms that I just didn't have a clue about. And then, you know, scroll forward four or five years and I'm through it. And it was, you know, it's so great being out on the other side. So if you've read the first half of the book and you're thinking, oh, my God please read the second half because there's hope I promise but I just thought how different would it have been if somebody had told me all of this so I wrote the book you know that's a very long-winded way of saying I wrote the book I would have liked to have read when I was in my mid-40s I mean I think it's absolutely extraordinary some of the you know the things that pe- that people just don't talk about some of the that you, you touched on there the mental health and the, you know the, there's a, the kind of core number of symptoms I guess that are known and mostly laughed at why do you think it's not talked about well I think you've kind of almost answered the question in the question because menopausal women are the butt of the joke if you see menopausal women portrayed on TV or film, they're always a bit puffy and a lot sweaty and occasionally ragey. That's about it. And apart from the fact that until very recently, you hardly ever saw a woman over 40 on TV or film anyway, unless they were a mother-in-law. So, you know, I think there's that. But also our society is so ageing phobic. 
particularly amongst women. I mean, men are allowed to age. Men are allowed to be have gravitas and grey hair and be silver foxes and be made CEO. But it's very much felt like women were meant to just like shuffle off into the distance once they pass late 40s, early 50s. It's easier just not to admit it, isn't it? It's like if maybe if I pretend not to be menopausal, no one will notice and I might get to stay a bit longer. We need to challenge that, I think. Does it feel to you, Sam, that attitudes to age, however, are changing? I mean, I'm, I listened to your great interview with Marion Keyes on the podcast that accompanies, I guess, is accompanying the book. You were talking just about how in your 40s or in your 50s, you had the, the kind of cauliflower, <laughs> the kind of perm, you know, yes. by default. Like, it does feel like people get older later now, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I mean, things are definitely shifting. I was actually talking to my mum about this. She was saying, you know, she's in her mid 70s. And she's like, I wouldn't wear that stuff. You know, they still sell to older women, that kind of country casual thing that your grandmother maybe wore. Yeah, it's definitely getting better. And you've got, I would say, even in the last four or five years, you're seeing older women, if you like seizing the means of production, like, you know, Reese Witherspoon is in her, admittedly, she's in her mid 40s, but making parts for older women, more grown-up women. There are lots of women, I think, now standing up and saying, I am exactly the same as I was. I just don't have periods anymore. I've got the same style. I've got the same taste. You know, I'm still firing on all cylinders, if not more. And I, I definitely think we're, we're starting to see a pushback, but it's been a long time coming. I think the, the book's really good at stating how important those representatives, you know, kind of being able to see yourself represented in media, in boardrooms and all, all the rest, just how very important that is. Who, I wonder, were those role models for you growing up? I was asked for a Woman's Hour interview last week. I was asked to name a role model and it was really hard to pick just one but when I was growing up you know what I think I was incredibly selfish and I didn't look up I was a bit aware that there was a bit of a vacuum above me as I was kind of progressing in my career I was aware that there were the older women were vanishing but it's you know like I said it's selfish you I, I only realized when it started to hit me that they were gone there was no source of inspiration above me in terms of someone who looked like me but was 10, 15, 20 years older. And if you think I'm a kind of a straight, white, middle-class woman, what must that be like if you're LGBTQ+, or black, or brown, or disabled? You must think, you know, what am I supposed to do? I mean, l luckily now, and in the book, I mean, you do, you touch on lots of, you men mentioned Reese Witherspoon, but there are lots of kind of amazing spirits kicking about this book, you know, Iris Apfel and Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Elif Shafak. Are those the kind of guiding spirits that mean something to you now? You were talking about the means of production. Um, I think if I had to name one person, it would be Bernadine Evaristo because, you know, she is 60-ish. She has always been completely true to herself. Now she's the Man Booker Prize winner and has written the the most incredible book. Unlike most of us, she hasn't sold out along the way. She hasn't let herself down, if you like. But also one of the things I really admire to her is the way that she engages with younger women. I see so many women of my age and older dismissing younger women. And one of the things I wanted to say in the book really was, I don't think I would have written this book if not for the millennial women that I've encountered along the way because their attitude to the prevailing norms of society when I was going into my career and you know I just thought I had to put up and shut up 
but I saw something I didn't really approve of, I kept my head down. Whereas I see those young women now, and they will not have that. You know, Me Too, Time's Up, Black Lives Matter, none of those things would have happened without those young women. You know, if periods hadn't become part of the prevailing conversation in the last three or four years, you know, because before that, you would have pretended you weren't having a period. I feel like my generation, we were brought up to pretend, you know, to minimize our femaleness if you know what I mean. Whereas, you know, when I was recruiting women in their 20s and early 30s, a few years ago, they were very much, I have really bad endometriosis, I need to work from home two days a a month. And that's it. And I think I've taken a lot of lessons from those young women, which is that stand up for yourself, speak up, don't complain quietly to your friends and then go about it, you know, everything is normal. Stand up and be counted, you know, and I think that's to go back to Bernadine Evaristo. I really, I see that in her and I think that's really admirable. Just a real deep knowing of your own self, isn't it? And the, the book is also really interesting on women and anger. Angry men are powerful, but angry women are just, they're a different thing. It seems to me that that's been a great fuel or creative energy or has come to be that for you. Would, would that be the case? Yes, definitely. I think anger is, it's, How do I put it? Society is afraid of angry women, isn't it? I mean, if you look at the way, I mean, she's maybe an extreme, extreme example, but look at, say, Rose McGowan. You know, she is one angry woman and she has every good reason to be angry. And yet she is constantly undermined, dismissed, disregarded because of her anger. I mean, if you think about the way that even children, that if a little girl is, is angry, she's having a tantrum, and a little boy is angry, he's being a little boy. And that goes on and gets worse as we get older. And I think the only time that anger is tolerated in women is, is when she's protecting her cubs. Then you're allowed to be an angry woman if you're a mum. You know, you're angry in pursuit of something else. So that's really struck me, you know, when I was going through the menopause that I don't think I'd ever been angry before. And I remember watching the film Inside Out with the five emotions, you know, uh, joy, sadness, anger, disgust, and what's the other one? Fear. And to me, that was a revelation. I was like, oh my God, there are five emotions, you know. (laughs) But, you know, I just think the women aren't encouraged to be angry. It's dismissed as hysteria. Or in white women, it's like the angry black woman trope. It's an excuse not to take their complaints seriously. Really interesting. One of the women I spoke to for the book, I interviewed 50 women for the book about their experiences because I wanted as diverse a range of experiences as possible addressed in the book. One of the women I spoke to said to me that she learned to be angry by watching her husband because her anger had always come with a penalty. Have I done the wrong thing? Am I going to get into trouble? What do they think of me now? And she started to watch her husband and his anger was just a tool in his kind of emotional armor. He would be angry and it would roll up and over and away and it was gone. You know, there was no agonizing about it for the next 48 hours or there were no repercussions. It was just a thing that happened occasionally. And so she started to do that and to give herself permission to be angry and it ceased to be a big deal. So I kind of learned a bit from that because I thought, well, if I'm, I'll try that, you know, because if maybe I am also stopping myself being angry by worrying about the repercussions when maybe there wouldn't be any. And how's that been? Did it work for you? Okay, so far. Although my husband did laugh at me. I was on Woman's Hour talking about assertiveness. 
And then at the weekend, he said, you know, something like really small, like, what do you want for supper? And I was like, oh, I don't mind. And he was like, I'm going to phone them up and tell them you're a fraud. (laughs) I was like, no, but I truly don't mind. If I really, really wanted to curry, I would have said so. Absolutely. Now, I did did want to ask you about some of the other women you interviewed, or at least what your findings were. What was there loads of common ground or was there anything that came from those women that really surprised you? about their experience? I mean, my favourite bit of writing this book has been those women, really. The getting to know them, the just having conversations with them face-to-face, but then also lockdown happened. So, you know, a fair amount of it was online. Every woman is very slightly different and you can't prejudge it. And there were some cases where I could never have guessed the differences and I I had prejudged it and I was wrong. And then there were other cases where, for instance... When we talked about sex and relationships, everybody was really reticent. I didn't get any response at all to my first tranche of questions that I sent out. And it was only when I sent a second email saying, obviously, this has struck a nerve, so shall we move on, that then people started replying. But that was quite depressing because a very large number of the women that I spoke to, who, like I say, were all from very different backgrounds and very different experiences, were really unhappy in their long-term relationships or they had left or they were looking to leave, which I was like, wow, that was the straight women. I have to say it was a slightly different story for the non-heterosexual ones. It must have just been so interesting for you to get those sort of that huge range of perspectives and stories. Um, how does the podcast relate, Sam, to the book? Is that a series of interviews? that you've gathered as you've gone along? No, the podcast actually came first and it was meant to launch earlier in the year. What happened was lockdown happened and it, it, it was meant to launch in April and it seemed like every single person in the world was launching a podcast from their bedsit and I didn't want it to get lost in a sea of lockdown podcasts so we held it back. I recorded the whole of the first series at the beginning of the year and the second series is I've nearly finished recording so they will go out back to back between now and Christmas. Do you know what? I absolutely love it. I love it. My favourite thing, I think that's why I loved interviewing the women for the book, is my, you know, fundamentally I'm a journalist and I, I just love nosing in other people's business. It really struck me as well that it's just not something that people talk about. And some people, are, are, some women are very reluctant to talk about it, even having agreed to be on the podcast, whereas others just plough straight on in there. But it's not just about menopause, the podcast, it's about life in your mid-late 40s onwards. And I think it's still depressingly rare to hear women's voices of that age. Well, that's a nice moment to look at that second half of the book, which is really about kind of seizing seizing the idea that, that I'm going to quote from the book, menopause isn't an abyss, it's a bridge to something new and unexpectedly exciting. Could you say more, Sam, about how that has been for you to basically reform the narrative that's around the menopause and around women of that age and stage in life? It really struck me when I, I came across the Katha Pollitt quote, which I think I might actually mention twice in the book, where she talks about the fact that women's narratives were laid down millennia ago and they were bound to our fertility. The fact that women's stories is very much about find the mate, get the nice house, get the nice life, have the children, and then what? It's like there is no anything after happy ever after. You know, that was arguably not really fair enough, but a little bit fair enough when people only lived to be about 25 and died in childbirth anyway. But now, you know, 45 is halfway through our lives. And so for me, I felt like, well, what's happened is that we've gone from having no story written for us after that point and that being translated into us just disappearing. And so what if that point that 
somebody else writing our story ceases, we pick it up and write our own. You know, that turns out to have really struck a chord with the women who've already read the book, but also the women who have I've just been talking to. Like, what does the second half of my life look like? And whether that is reframing your existing relationship, whether it is leaving your existing relationship, whether it's, you know, changing your job, whether it's just actually readdressing your relationship with yourself, which sounds really woo-woo, but actually isn't. Because if you're not at ease with yourself, then you aren't really going to be at ease with everything else. Yeah, seizing the means of production, as it were, yes, to use the yeah. phrase you used earlier. Yeah. How far did writing this book play a role in allowing you to do that for yourself then? What I don't want to say cathartic, but was it? Was it, was it a helpful period of time? period of reflection? Yes, and I didn't expect that, actually, because when I wrote the book proposal, as far as I was concerned, I was already through it, and I was writing it from a position of being on the other side. I'd been mulling the book over for some time, and I saw um, the episode of Fleabag where Kristen Scott Thomas gives that amazing little speech about menopause being awful and then being amazing and you're no longer a baby machine and that really really resonated with me but as I started to write it and to share other women's experiences that in itself was just incredibly like you say I don't use the word cathartic but now it's the only word that keeps popping into my head it was incredibly supportive and reassuring that everybody had some different experience but everybody was going through something but it was when I got towards the end of the book and I had when I was around about 50 gone into therapy and had some treatment for PTSD to deal with an abusive relationship that I uh, went through in my late teens I was an anti-therapy person. I was always, you know, negative about it, negative about people who had therapy. And when I went for the first session, I was a bit like, how long is this going to take? You know, <laughs> can you please tell me it'll be done in six weeks because I'm not going to sit here for 18 months. And I did sit there for 18 months. And it was hands down the best thing that I've ever done. It was not easy. It was not fun. But it was life-changing. And I was three quarters of the way through the second half of the book. And I sat down to write the chapter, which is on bravery. And I had it all planned out, which is the way I'd approached every chapter. I'd done the research. I'd done the speaking to case studies. I you know, had it all mapped out in my head. I had my facetious opener. I was going to write about Betty White from The Golden Girls and her quote about why do they say grow a pair? Because, you know, balls are fragile and vaginas can really take a pounding, you know. I was So that was, that was going to be my way in. And then I sat down and I wrote 4,000 words and then not a single one of them were the words that I had planned. That is the chapter that's in the book. I mean, literally, as it spewed out of my brain onto the page is what's in the book. And I read it back and I thought, oh my God, <laughs> what have you done that for? But to me, I agonized about it and I talked to people about it and I read it over and over. The narrative only made sense with that in there because that was my shift. My shift was that going through perimenopause, intermenopause, something about that enabled me to address something that I had not addressed for 30 years. And so it felt extremely dishonest to write an entire book about how we needed to be honest and talk more and not get right to the crux of the matter. But I can't say it hasn't made me feel a bit sick, but now it's sure. out there on bookshelves. Yeah, of course, but it, it the book knew what it needed. It sounds like it, it had to be there. Um, a final thing, that another shift has happened that you've mentioned in the book in that you're now living in Edinburgh. Yes, I love it. I just wanted to ask, how's that? How's life there? Oh, it's wonderful. I mean, it took us a long time to get here because we had 
first time sale fell through and then we got trapped by lockdown in my brother's spare room where we'd moved out of our house but we hadn't been able to move in up here and the land registry shut so we we're in my brother's spare room for four months but we got here at the beginning of july and it's i love it i couldn't be happier it's been a long time coming Thank you to Sam for joining us. Do check out her podcast, The Shift, and don't forget to get a copy of her book of the same name. Thank you so much to Dinata and to Sam Baker for joining us on the podcast this week. Thank you to you for tuning in from wherever you are. We will be back with you again next week. But for now, take good care of yourselves. All best. Bye bye. <laughs>